Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn in your Bibles as we continue our journey through Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. And we'll pick up in verse 14. And as we do so, the Lord is going to remind us of why he came. As we saw last time, this incredible picture of the Passover, and I think it's important to set the stage, and so we'll look at that one more time briefly. But God has sent his son into this world that the world through him might be saved. Amen? That's actually the Easter message. We celebrate how it happened, which is the cross and the resurrection. But the plan of God from the beginning of time, some meeting that occurred in eternity past, was always to redeem mankind. That word redeemed or redemption means to buy back at a price, to, to pay, in essence, the, the price that was necessary to buy someone out of their condition. That condition for us was the condition of our sin that leads unto death. And so for us, the Easter message is the story of redemption. It's how God made provision for us that we might become the children of God. And so Jesus is going to highlight that provision. And then we'll see one final protest from the disciples. You would think that the disciples would be fully on Jesus' team. That by now, after nearly three years of traveling with him throughout the region of Galilee principally, but now in the area of Jerusalem, that they would get it. But they didn't. They got hung up. And that hang-up, I believe, is one that this country specifically is hung up in as well. And so the final provision and then the protest. Would you pray with me? And we'll pick up once again in verse 14 briefly. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that you sent your own son into this world that we, through him, would be saved. Lord, it was unthinkable in in so many ways that you would do that. Those of us who are parents in this congregation this morning watching online can't imagine giving our own children up for anyone, but you did. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us through your word this morning. Strengthen us, encourage us as we approach Easter week, the beauty of the cross and the tomb, and that is empty. Speak to us as your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, it's good that we go back to the Lord's desire. Remember last week, as we saw, and when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles 
with him and then said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I say to you that I will no longer eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I want to take some time focusing on what that means. What is the kingdom of God and why does it matter? Not only does it matter greatly, the kingdom of God is the focus of exactly why Jesus came. He came to establish his kingdom. Not the kingdom of man, not the kingdom of a government, not the kingdom of this world, but his kingdom. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take and eat for this, divide this amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the, and he says it again, kingdom of God has come. This is so important for us right now to answer this question. What is the kingdom of God? Why does it matter? And why does it especially matter today in our world? Because if you are confused about this question, you might be trying to build the wrong kingdom. And I can tell you there are an awful lot of people in our country that are trying to build the wrong kingdom right now. We need to be kingdom focused and we need to have the right kingdom in view. What did Jesus mean? What was he getting at? What exactly is? You see, the Jewish people during that time wrongly thought that that kingdom was going to be right then and right there and right now. Notice that Jesus uses a future tense as he, just, as he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. He was alive in that moment. He was going to celebrate communion, but he's making a reference to the future. And part of what has happened in our world, and actually in the world for the last 2,000 years, is a confusion about this kingdom. And from it has come a theology that is loosely known as kingdom now theology. That we literally right now are in the fully functioning, fully fulfilled kingdom that Jesus spoke about. And some of the aberrant things that have begun to be bantered about actually caused a split within Calvary Chapel back in the 1980s was this theology that says, well, you can be perfectly sinless right now because the full kingdom is here on earth. It's already happened. Was that Jesus' intent as he says, this kingdom that is to come? And why does it matter to us right now? If you take this to its logical conclusion, if the kingdom of God exists and you look at the totality of what scripture says, then we ought to be absolutely sinless. There ought to be no death. 
No dying. There should be, in essence, a takeover of this world by the gospel. Can I ask you a question? In the last 2,000 years, has that happened? It sure has not. And in fact, one could make the case that the world is actually less Christian today than it was, say, a couple hundred years ago. It is very important for us to distinguish between what is temporary, what is finite, these things that we would look at as literal or non-literal, partial and incomplete, the kingdom fully come or the kingdom partially come. You see, it's very true that part of the kingdom dwells inside of every believer. In other words, wherever you are, the kingdom actually is in Christ in you, your hope of glory, in the freedom that you now have from sin. The fact that when you die, you're going to be present with the Lord. There are some kingdom things that already exist in you. But God's kingdom does not fully exist in this world as it one day will. The number of outlandish things that people have begun to say and believe because they've misunderstood the kingdom is a very long list indeed. And it includes things like sinless perfection. I've had people write me letters. Well, you know, the body of Christ no longer sins. If you're really a believer, you'll never sin again. I always point them to the same passage of Scripture. And if you want to mark it, you can look at it later in its entirety, but it's found in Romans chapter 7. I think most everyone here in this room believes the Apostle Paul was a Christian. Writing about his own life to other Christians who happen to be Romans, for we know, Romans 7, 14, that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Present tense, first person. Sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. What I will to do, that I do not practice. What I hate, that I do. If I do what I will not to do, then I agree that the law is good. But it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. That is the Apostle Paul after his conversion. He's nearing the end of his life. He's probably in his late 50s or 60s saying, I got an issue with sin. He goes on. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present within me, how to perform what is good, that will I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. If you go through this passage and start circling all the first person pronouns, specifically I, 
you're going to see that the Apostle Paul some 24 times uses himself as the example of someone who, though redeemed, saved, heading for heaven, does not have the fullness of God's kingdom dwelling in even the great Apostle Paul. The potential's there, but the reality of it is he was still a sinner, desperately in need of a savior. And now what I will to do, I do not do, and it's no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells in me, verse 21, then I find that the law, that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. He wills to do good, but he says, I don't do that. I don't want to do bad. He says, but that I do. You get the picture? You got to have the kingdom correct because there is a infinitely more complete kingdom that is to come. And that's the one that Jesus has in focus. If the apostle Paul could not attain unto absolute sinless perfection, which it goes on to say, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he answers the question, I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. In other words, Paul, the great apostle, struggled against his sin nature. So if you think the full kingdom has come, then maybe you're going to do exactly what the disciples do in this particular passage. Well, it's already here. So let's start a Christian country. Let's preach Christian nationalism. Let's try and blend everything together because the kingdom's already here in its fullness. That is exactly what the disciples did 2,000 years ago. It was wrong then, and it is wrong now. Because not everyone on this planet is a Christian. Not everyone in our state is a Christian. Not everyone in our city is a Christian. Not everyone in your household likely is even a Christian. Some of you may live in households that have believers and unbelievers. Now imagine that you're trying to press upon someone who has no capacity to follow the commands of God because they're not redeemed. Imagine that you're trying to press upon them a godly morality, for instance. You think that's going to work? The answer is it's not. Is it the very best thing for them? Oh, absolutely it is. But Paul said, these things are spiritually appraised. The carnal mind cannot know them. So when you're talking to someone about sinless perfection that does not know the Lord, you might as well be talking in some foreign language that they cannot understand because their minds are not yet redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so the disciples began to think amongst themselves, well, let's get this party started. Let's just go for it right here. In fact, we're going to see them argue about who is going to be the governor of Judea. 
And who's going to be president of Israel? That's coming next. The full kingdom had not yet come. People still die. People still refuse the grace of God. There is a literal kingdom that is coming. And in that kingdom, Jesus said, I will drink this again with you. That one's still future, folks. That's the kingdom that Jesus was focused on. And so the time had come for Jesus to give his life as he celebrates the Passover, which we went through ourselves last week, as he sits down with them, as he takes that cup of redemption and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. The new covenant is alive and well. And to as many as received him, to them he gave the ability to become the sons of God, the daughters of God, the children of God, people of God, redeemed, saved. Call it whatever you want to call it. That is the soteriological position. In other words, the doctrine of salvation. But he's saying, look, the time has come to make this sacrifice. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to seal it. I'm going to say it is finished. I'm going to do all those things. But make no mistake, there is a future and absolutely complete kingdom of God that is still coming. And we're going to see how the disciples misunderstood this as we get towards the end of our time today. He's about to be slaughtered. He is about to give his life. And as he does so, he makes this final provision. He declares himself to be the middle piece of matzah. He's the afikoman. He's the one that is the priest and mediator, broken in half and hidden. And then he takes the cup after supper and says, this cup, which was the cup of redemption, is the cup of the new covenant. Well, what is the new covenant? The new covenant is the covenant of grace. It's the covenant of God's mercy being poured out upon us. It's us being redeemed by his blood. It's not us being good and earning salvation. It's him being perfect and giving us salvation. You see, this provision that's being made has dual implications. There's the eschatological one, which is the doctrine of the last days or the end times, which one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? The old things are going to pass away, and it isn't going to be like this anymore. You see, that one's still future. We have a little bit of that now. Well, Pastor Rob and I were talking in the green room. It's like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if the Lord raptured us today? We have these weird, you know, it's just like this kind of joyful moments. Everyone's like, yeah, man, the Lord can come get us. Look, that's my reality. That's the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and King. Amen? So we have that hope every day. I have been redeemed. My sins have been forgiven. Present tense right now today. 
I am going to heaven. One day I will be glorified. But right now, I'm still a little bit of a work in progress. And so are you. And praise God, he keeps working right unto the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? And so the Apostle Paul was right in Romans 7. Those things which I will to do, I do not do. And those things which I will not to do, these very things I do. And I think we can all say, and I'm not asking you to, we can all say amen to that. Amen? Amen. That's the truth. There is still a lot more of the kingdom to come. But in this present condition where we are saved, soteriology is the study of salvation. It's the science of your salvation. You are absolutely, perfectly, 100% saved. But you are not perfectly, 100%, as holy as you will ever be. You understand the difference? You you see, because you're still a work in progress, because you still have a sin nature, because you still have the capacity to sin, because you can still make free will choices, because you are still bound in a body of death that will one day either see you raptured or you will take your last breath and head home to heaven, because you're still a work in progress, though your soteriological position is that you are saved, you're redeemed, the price is paid, and you are one day going to heaven, you're not there yet. And so the world, even in that sense, is filled with Christians that are all still works in progress. There is none righteous, not one, save the man Christ Jesus. And so in that sense... If you don't look forward to a future kingdom that's absolutely perfect and you confuse it with today, guess what you start doing? You start thinking you're further along the journey than you really are. And so all of a sudden, you become the solution to the world's problems. You start looking at life from that perspective as if, well, you know, I'm complete. In Christ Jesus, I'm complete. In Christ Jesus, I'm going to heaven. But in my flesh, I'm still a sinner. Desperately in need of my Savior's work every day, redeeming me. Paying for that past sin, the present sin, and yes, even the future sin. You see, because we like to confine sin to major issues that we would all agree on. You know, well, that person's a... You know, he's a murderer. You know, that person's a kidnapper. And you could, you could fill in your list of your 10, you know, top, you're going to hell for sure with those. Let me mess with most of you. How about those of you today that are harboring bitterness in your heart? How about Unforgiveness. How about you got a tough time telling the truth? Ooh, he did not just say that, did he? How about those of you that are contentious? Or you really enjoy injecting just a little tad bit of strife into situations? You know who you are today. You're that person. It's like everywhere you go, you just got to poke somebody's button. 
hate to tell you this, that's sin. As far as God's concerned, oh, you may accept it. And you may have the reasons why you accept your specific areas that you are really more broken than you want to admit. But the fact of the matter is, if the redeeming blood of Christ was not covering your present sins and your future sins, then you wouldn't be redeemed at all. And so there is a future kingdom where there will be no sin, including the sin of unforgiveness and bitterness and being a talebearer, a gossip, a hypocrite. You get what I'm saying? You see, we like to focus in on what well, is a crack dealer, or that's a homosexual, or that's an adulterer, or that's a drunkard. But the Bible does not look at sin that way. The Bible looks at all sin as every sin is capable of keeping you out of heaven. And you better hope that you don't have any of it when you get to heaven's door. And praise the Lord by the blood of the Lamb, you won't. But until you get there, you better remember Romans 7. Those things which I will to do, I do not do. And those things which I will not to do, those very things I do. God, deliver me from this body of death. Get your kingdom right. There's a kingdom that's coming, church. How do the disciples respond to this? And this is how we can see it. This is the way we can know it. But behold, verse 21... These final protests and then the dispute of the disciples. This disclosure. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it's been determined. Does that strike you? Now if you had been you and you were sitting in Jesus' seat and you knew it was Judas Iscariot. You know, I'm thinking I'm ratting him out. It's like, notice how Jesus handles this. He still has compassion on Judas. He could have just said, yeah, the scuzzbag Judas is going to narc on me. You understand what I'm saying? He knew. Jesus wasn't ignorant. He wasn't, oh man, Judas is so smart, he got one on me. What was he doing? He was still giving Judas an opportunity to repent. And truly the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It's a warning doesn't turn him over. What do you think Peter would have done to Judas had he known? Think about it. Think about it. Got it covered. Right? What he would have done. Peter would have stood up, struck Judas dead right there. I'm sure of it. 
And we know because the story is going to continue and we're going to see how he responds when Jesus is arrested. This is his propensity. And then they began to question among themselves which of them would do this thing. So here they are sitting around. Well, who is it? Who would do such a thing? Whose heart is that hard? And yet to God, Judas was no surprise. To Jesus, Judas was no surprise. And in fact, the prophets had said, the Son of Man will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the exact price that Judas has paid. It was all determined ahead of time. God would make the very cross itself an evidence of exactly how far man would go in the practice of sin. Think about it. We're coming to Easter. This is just a perfect place for us to be leading up to Easter week. This is the disciples, church. These are the big names. When you get to heaven, right there on the front door, Peter, James, John, and no, it's not going to be like that. But I mean, these are the guys that you look to and you go, man, they had it big. Oh, it was awesome. They walked with Jesus. And they didn't have a clue at times. So preach some grace to yourself, church. Walk in his grace yourself, church. Let the Lord's love wash over you today, church. Because they didn't get it. They're just as messed up as we are sometimes. Peter would put it this way later in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Verse 22 and 23. Jesus of Nazareth describes exactly who he's talking about. A man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter was in the room with the dude with the wicked hand. He didn't know who it was. They're wondering amongst themselves, who is it? One of those wicked hands was sitting right there at the table. Church, we need the precious blood of the Lamb to rinse us free every moment of every day. Every moment of every day. For our intentional sin, our sometimes unintentionally motivated sin that we get into, you get into that situation, your intent was not to sin, but it leads down a road that heads towards it, and eventually you get to that place, or how did I get here? That's the disciples. They weren't sitting around figuring out how they could disappoint the Lord. But you think they disappointed the Lord? We're going to find out as Jesus prays, oh, he was really disappointed. 
praise God that there's redemption for those who disappoint the Lord. Because I know I have. I've disappointed Jesus. There's nothing I'm proud of. Who I'm proud of is him because he still loves me the same. That's our Jesus. And here's what I want to end with this morning. The disciples dispute. First, look at how they have conflict. And now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered greatest. Think of this. Is this insane to you? I have giggled over this passage so many times. It's like I read this. It's like, okay, Jesus is talking about a new covenant, his own blood. He's talking about all these things, the hand of the betrayers with him at the table, and they're arguing about who's the great one in the room. If you don't have the right kingdom, you start to worry about the one that's already here, which isn't the right kingdom. So they start arguing. Notice what Jesus says to them. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. It's like, oh, I'm a real benefactor. You know what? It is not a benefactor when you give away almost $2 trillion of money that you didn't earn. That is not being a benefactor. So when our government gives you back money that you earned that they're going to take from you, that's not being a benefactor. Okay? Just let's clear that up. That's called a tax, and y'all are going to have to pay for it later. That's what the kings of the earth do. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, you're completely guilty. You're deserving of death. And in your place, I am going to die for you. And I'm going to give you my life in the place of your death. That is a benefactor. Why is that important? Because there is the confusion of the two kingdoms. The kingdom of man says, if I give you something may not have even belonged to me in the first place. You're going to call me benevolent. I'm a benefactor. But not so among you, on the contrary, verse 26, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? You see, at that day and time, If you were a servant, you did not sit at the table. You stood at the door and you waited for someone to need something and your whole job was to serve everyone else. And Jesus says, the greater one is the servant. Not you guys sitting at the triclinium with me. That guy right over there that's going to bring you the bread, that's going to bring you the wine, that's going to serve you. That guy is actually greater than you. Yet, I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who've continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom. Please underline that. 
doesn't say the kingdom. It says a kingdom. It's because the kingdom that he's putting on them is personal. Private. It's in their hearts. It will affect their world, but not the kingdom. Just as my father bestowed one upon me, when he came, he brought with him the kingdom. He's going to pay the price for the kingdom. But the fullness of that kingdom, not yet realized. And you don't have to look very far in our world to see that. That you may eat and drink at my table, now he says, in my kingdom. Two different kingdoms. He's making the differentiation between the two. A kingdom, the one that's personal to you, the one that comes through salvation, and my kingdom, the one that is still yet future, and here's how we know it, and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Little historical reference, the 12 tribes of Israel did not exist at that point in time. 10 of the 12 had been taken captive by the Assyrians. Judah, which was the principal tribe in the south, had been taken captive by the Babylonians, sent off for 70 years. They came back. The Jewish people were a hodgepodge mess. Most of them could not trace their lineage. The temple records were destroyed. But not in heaven. And so the book of Revelation tells us that there will literally be a redemption of those 12 tribes. Matter of fact, goes on to name them by name. They're in Revelation 7 and says there will be 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes, 144,000 of them, all saved during a very specific point in time called the tribulation. It's pointing towards a time when those people at that kingdom will be alive. Hasn't happened yet. So Jesus said, Here's a kingdom. It's the one that's in you. And here is the kingdom, the one that is still future, that will have the children of Israel in it. The Jewish people never turned to Jesus in mass. They still haven't. Blindness is still in part, exactly as Paul said, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so here's this future kingdom. But in the midst of us, they have this conflict. You have to get the kingdom right. They're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the one here and now. Well, let's just make sure that this governance that we have right now is redeemed. It's an impossibility until the king comes. Now, understand what I'm saying. I am not saying, and the Bible does not say, that we shouldn't do everything we can to have godly rulers. In fact, the Bible clearly says that we should attempt to have godly rulers. For when godly men rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, the people groan. Amen? So we should do that. But that still won't make the kingdom come. The kingdom is going to come when the king comes. That's when the kingdom is going to come. So don't confuse those two things. Do everything you can today to take your personal kingdom that Jesus just mentioned, the one that is in you, a kingdom, 
and take that right out into our world and do everything you can to be transformative with your faith. But make no mistake. It's going to take the king coming again to bring the kingdom. The full one. The whole one. The one where there's no death, no dying, no sin. Righteousness literally will rule and reign from one corner of the earth to the other, and the earth is round. So if you're a flat earther, corners make sense to you. As the disciples finish this, what are they looking at? I bestow upon you a kingdom. Just as my father bestowed one upon me. Jesus came. But when he left, was the entire earth a Christian kingdom? Oh, no. Matter of fact, the early Christians were nearly wiped out. But there were little individual kingdoms all over the place. The Apostle Paul was one in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae, Smyrna, Pergamum. Peter would hang around Jerusalem. James would be the first pastor of the, I don't know, first Baptist church of Jerusalem. I don't know. First Christian church for sure. There were little kingdoms everywhere. And you're a little kingdom wherever you are too. Make sure people can see the kingdom in you and hear the kingdom from you so that they can want to be in the kingdom themselves. So when the kingdom comes, they're a part of it. That's the plan. That's the part the disciples kind of missed. It's like, well, we want it right now. Make me governor, make me prince, make me king. Let me sit on the throne with you. And Jesus said, well, it's not going to really work that way. If you want to be great in my kingdom, here's how you can do it right now. Serve. Be a servant. Express my kingdom that way until I come. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. You're here today and you haven't become part of the kingdom. The kingdom has not come to you personally. We want to make sure and offer that opportunity to you today because all you need to do is invite Jesus into your life to forgive your sin, to cleanse you from unrighteousness to do that work in you to free you personally from the bondage that you're under right now. You simply need to confess your sin and he'll forgive it. For those of us that have received him already, let's go show the world the kingdom. Let's be what Jesus asked us to be. Let's serve other people. Let's love them. Let's make sure they know how good he is. 
But let's not confuse the two things. Jesus saves. We just point the way to him. Father, we thank you for your goodness. That you sent your own son. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today, we pray as a church. For those who in the hearing of this message are wondering what does it mean to be a child of God. And so Lord, we pray that you would impress upon them the need to accept the fact that they're a sinner and they can't save themselves. They can confess their sin right now before you and just say, Lord, I'm tired of living that life. I want to be free of it. And Lord, you will forgive their sin and come in and and drink with them, Lord, this cup of the new covenant. And for us who know you already, Lord, we're so desirous to see your full kingdom come. But we recognize also, Lord, that there's work to be done. So we ask that you would move in our midst, create in us a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit in us, Lord. Help us to walk with you and be little pieces of your kingdom wherever we go. And when we gather together, a bigger piece of your kingdom that is to come. As we look forward to that day when, Jesus, you step out of eternity and back into time to receive us to yourself. Make us useful, we ask in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.